Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and I'm really glad you could join me, as this week we get the chance to speak with the Honorable Poto Williams. And I really enjoyed the chance to go with her back in history to find out a little bit about where she's from and what were the influences that led her to get involved in the community sector herself before transitioning to become a politician and the work she does now as the Minister for the Community and Voluntary Sector. And here's a short little excerpt from our conversation. And the things that have really turned me around have not been the fact that I've been on medication. It's mm. actually those inspiring things that happen. Like for me, it, um, I often tell the story when I was at my most low, uh, particularly after my brother died, that I heard a song on the radio and there were some lyrics to that. It's a song by Jewel and it's called, is it called These Hands? Anyway, there's mm. a couple of lines in it. And she's, one of the things that really kicked kickstart me was, I will not be made idle by despair. And I thought, aha, that's about choice, right? You can either choose to sit in this or you can choose to not sit in it and do something about it. So that was really powerful. But it goes on to say, you know, a whole lot of things about taking control of you know the situation and that you know they talk about the size of your hands these hands are small Mm -hmm. you know but its size isn't important it's what you do with it that is but at the the very last line is um, in the end only kindness matters right and that sealed the deal for me that's so cool now we're going to get into this interview and i did put a link to that video by jewel as well in the show notes and there's a bunch of other links as well I know you're going to enjoy this interview, and if you do, you might want to check out the more than 200 others in the back catalogue. What I'm trying to do with the Seeds Project is to build up a database of stories of people who are doing good in our world. And there's a lot more information at theseeds.nz. And if you're listening to this in a podcasting app, if you hit subscribe, then you'll get a notification of future updates as well. Now let's get straight into this interview. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome the Honorable Poto Williams, who's the Member of Parliament for Christchurch East and is the Minister for the Community and Voluntary Sector, as well as the Associate Minister for Greater Christchurch Regeneration, Immigration, and Social Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this talk because there's a lot going on at the moment, and I think it's important to have these conversations and to hear lots of different perspectives. Absolutely. And so what we do on Seeds Podcast is we actually go back in time and we ask people a little bit about where they're from. And the reason for doing that is that it helps to understand why they do what they do today. And in your case, I know that you have a background in the community sector, Mm -hmm. and yet now you're within government. So I'm really curious about that transition. Um, What was it that led you to make it? Um, But also how how you're finding it. Um, and also, I, n- I know that there's some Cook Islands mm-hmm. um, connections, so I'd love to find out a little bit more about that. So could we go back in time yeah. to when you're, say, four or five years old and describe where you were living and what that was like? It's really interesting because just as you started talking, Stephen, I immediately went back to um, my childhood. I grew up in Ponsonby in, the, in um, Auckland, and at that time, um, in the... Um, 1960s in Auckland 
uh, it was a very, uh, where I grew up in Ponsonby was um, one of the poorer parts of town. We had quite a league of nations of people who lived around us. Mm. Lots of Pacific people, lots of people who had, um, had come post-World War II. Um, so we had a Polish family next to us, for example. You know, people mm. who were escaping other parts of the world. So um, it was a really interesting uh, interesting time and place. And the school that I went to, Beresford Street School, actually was one of the first schools that used accelerated learning um, methods. Mm. So um, I was the youngest child. Um, my parents were 40 and 40 year, 44 years older than, you know, at the time that I was born. Mm-hmm. I was precocious. Um, there were seven years between me and my uh, next oldest sibling, so I spent a lot of time kind of exploring the world on my own, which you could do when um, when I was a child. Mm. Um, so I guess I've always been a bit curious. Um, had you know this Polynesian background within a very Polynesian city within an environment where um, uh, you know things weren't easy. But um, my parents had this amazing work ethic and I, I look back on those times at how um, uh, poor we may have been, but actually just how they were different uh, in terms to the way people um, experience poverty today. I think there, were m- there was much more opportunity. The fact that my father worked as a labourer but could afford to you know, um, have a house and, and mm. you know, um, feed a family, and, and it's quite different to people's experiences today. Mm. Yeah. So that's where I, that's kind of where my... Um, that's the starting that's, point. That's the starting point, and, yeah. And just, I'm really curious for your parents, like mm. you mentioned the back to Pacific, mm. what was their origin or, or yeah, what what does that relate to? So my parents, my my as far as I know, my parents came out in the same kind of year. Although they married in New Zealand, they did, they met each other in Auckland. Mm-hmm. Um, but they came out in the late nineteen fifties, um, mid nineteen fifties. My sister was born in um, Auckland in nineteen fifty five. So you no, know, it would have been early nineteen fifties. They came out from the Cooks. My mother came out as a um, as a maid. Um, to live with a family, they, they, you know, there was a lot of domestic um, uh, uh, servitude almost, you know, mm. from the Pacific. You know, young Pacific woman came out and worked in um, in the homes of quite well-to-do uh, New Zealanders, mm-hmm. looking after the children and being the, you know, uh, looking after the house and that kind of thing. So she came out. She was um, uh, bonded for I think it was a year, mm. and then she was able to go and find other work. Um, my father came out as a labourer and um, worked on the boats and did a whole lot of other things. So, you know, quite quite humble um, work. And for them, in terms of their identity Mm. and growing up, I guess for you as a young child, how did that work? Because I've spoken with a number of people on the podcast who've come from, or their parents had come from Pacific Islands, Mm. whether it's Tonga or Samoa, and they talk about almost having two cultures in one. Was it similar for you? Or? Yeah, it was. Uh, that's a really good way of describing it. Um, uh, what tends to happen is that, um, uh, you know, groupings of people tend to gravitate together. So the Cook Islanders, are, we, we, lots of us lived in Ponsonby, so, mm. and we would gather together quite often, you know, social functions and the like, and, you know, the Samoan families were the same, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my parents chose not to teach us our language, um, which kind of set us apart um, uh, but they were very much engaged with 
um, their cultural group, our cultural group, and we did a lot of cultural things together. Mm. We would have lots of events where there'd be lots of singing and dancing, and I grew up um, learning the songs and learning how to, um, uh, lots of the kind of performance stuff within the culture, but didn't have the language. Right. um, And looking back, what do you think was their reasoning? Did you ever ask them? Oh, yeah. Like, at the time, I can kind of understand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Often. (laughs) It would have made it so much easier, right? (laughs) Well, yeah. In in later life, I did feel like I I would go to events and not quite understand what was going, you know, the context and, and the, um, the with which the language is um, is used is quite different. You know, there's a lot of conceptual stuff that happens in language that you kind of you kind of miss. Yeah. Um, my, our parents um, said to us that they wanted us to be successful in New Zealand. That English was the language, and that, that that's what they wanted for us. So mm. you know, I understand completely. You know. Um, uh, and now it would be amazing if I could speak the language. I don't feel apart from my community because of it, mm. but I do know that sometimes perhaps I'm not, uh, you know, really understanding a lot of the context that goes on. Mm. You know, I'm I'm loved and and um, you know welcomed and supported by my by my Pacific community by my Cook Island community. So yeah, mm. and in terms of Cook Island culture. How would you go about describing it? I honestly don't know very much. Oh, it's vibrant. Um, it's faith-based. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's there's a lot of um, a lot of laughter and a lot of music and a lot of dancing, a lot of celebration. It's a very mm. celebratory culture. We spend um, uh, our get-togethers. Half of it will be in. Um, in prayer, mm. and then the then the second half will be in song mm. and and um, other you know. So I I spend a lot of time just singing and dancing and right. loving that. But a typical New Year's Eve, for example, um, we would all gather together at what was the Māori Community Centre in Halsey Street in um, downtown Auckland, and we'd get gather together at six p.m. We'd have a meal together, and then our old people would sing until midnight. They'd sing pre- prayers and hymns until wow. midnight and then at midnight we'd have another meal um, the children would be <laughs> put to bed some in some corner and then we'd have a social function and that's how we operate you know we uh, first give thanks to mm. you know the creator and then um, we celebrate and uh, very social culture in that way yeah that's fascinating and did you feel sort of that we talked about sort of two cultures was that a sense as you're a child growing up that, that things were different at home compared to school or other places? Not not really, because where I grew up was, we were very, right. we had lots of uh, Pacific people around us. It mm. wasn't probably until I got to high school that that became a little bit more evident. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Well, just talk us through then coming into high school. Did you have certain subjects that you enjoyed more than others? Or I'm a bit of a maths geek, oh, okay. actually. Yeah, yeah so right. yeah, I hadn't realised that um, until yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so maths probably I did languages. So I did French and um, Maori, which was great. Um, mm. So I was kind of trying to make up for the fact that I didn't have Cook Island um, real at home mm-hmm. and and did Maori. But the thing is, our languages are similar. But it um, probably. About at the age of five or six, they di- you know they diverge and they become slightly different. Right. The Cook Island language has got lots of syllables and it's a lot more, I guess, musical to listen to in, in mm. many ways. Mm. Um, but look, I was um, 
You know, I talked about being precocious. I, you know, was part of lots of clubs. I did athletics and I did music and I did folk singing and um, joined it, participated as much as I could. I loved school, loved high school. Mm. And the math side of things, you said that was sort of a surprise to you. Did, yeah. Was, yeah. Why was it a surprise, I guess? <laughs> well, I guess it kind of, when I think about myself as a person, mm. um, I, don't, I am actually quite analytical and I'm um, quite logical. Mm. And, um, you know, that's not really that kind of, you know, <laughs> That's not kind of that fun, and I'm quite a fun person, I think. So, mm-hmm. the, having a, quite a, a logical and and um, having a mind that likes to operate um, in patterns and in that way, mm-hmm. um, it, I'm not saying it was a surprise. Oh my gosh, that's so terrible! It's actually quite a joy to you know. I, I quite like seeing patterns in life. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Oh, that's mm. good. It's I've done a few podcasts with people who really love mathematics, mm. and they often talk about the fact that it's everywhere mm. you know and the, the classic would be look at the snowflake yeah. it's different to everything else but actually listen to the music that's Absolutely. playing look, you know look at the trees growing look at everywhere you go there's at the base mathematics is yeah. there yeah i always found a lot of joy and i do find a lot of joy in music mm. and that i guess for me is yeah the, the correlation for me with maths is music and being able to read and write and you know just the and the patterns of it yeah Mm, yeah and you mentioned that your nearest sibling was seven years difference Mm. um does that mean that sort of as you grew up through your teenage years had all of your siblings left you know as a relatively young child Uh, yeah pretty much although my sister and her husband came back my sister um uh, who's the one who's just older than me um um married quite young and had um, children quite young and so I got quite involved as a as a teenager very young teenager with um, Mm. my uh, nephew and niece as they came along so Mm. yeah uh, there was I you know I said I was a precocious child spent a lot of time kind of exploring things well I have spent a lot of time I think within myself Mm. Um, uh, yeah so I'm quite self-sufficient can spend time by myself quite happily and go off and explore and Mm. um, you know that's probably my happy space, really. Mm. And mm. You, you would trace that back to being yeah. sort of... Because yeah. in a way, if you're the final child like that, yeah. you can become like the only child. Yeah, and, and I, I was quite spoiled, I have to say. You know, and my right. parents were older, <laughs> perhaps didn't have the energy to run after me, you know, as, as much. So I think I probably did get away with lots of things. Yeah, yeah. oh, interesting. Mm. And as, as you're coming up and kind of getting your own sense of identity, kind of leaving high school age, did you ever have a sense that I want to go back to the Cook Islands? Like, was that a place that had appeal for living, or was Auckland where you were, New Zealand was home? Aotearoa is definitely home. The mm. only time I've really felt a pull um, to um, the Cook Islands in terms of wanting to possibly live there was after my brother died. Um, now that's going back uh, about ten years ago. Mm. I went back to the Cooks um, to uh, be part of a memorial service for him. Okay. And at that time, I spent you know probably about ten days. It was the first time I felt like I could live here. Mm. I actually would like to live here. Mm. But my you know, but Aotearoa is definitely. I feel a sense of um, wanting to contribute to this place. Right. You know. This is my home. This is the place that raised me. This is who I am. Um, yeah. I'm a I'm a, um, a Cook Island New Zealander. Mm. You know, um, mm. I feel that very strongly. Mm. Um, all that, an, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of that Turanga Waiwai sort of concept, like where you're from, isn't it? Like there's a strong connection to the place. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar. I have an accent, but I actually mm. grew up here in Christchurch mm. from the age of seven. So um, for me, this has always been home. And I left for 11 years and then came back four years ago because of that sense of this is the place I want to contribute and be involved. Mm. So I completely mm. I understand. And so coming to the end of high school, did you know like what you would do? Were you going to go working or study or, yeah? I've, all, I've always worked. I think I started doing a paper round when I was 12. And right. yeah, then I worked in a, a, a restaurant as a waitress and um, an opportunity came up to train with the uh, what was the Department of Māori Affairs at that time as a community cadet. Mm-hmm. And I knew that once I started in that uh, field of work that that's really where I wanted to be. I wanted to work in the community. Mm. So other than a few forays into... Um, into the corporate world to do various things and to learn various skills. Mm. Actually, my my work has always been in the community, working for the community. Mm. So what was it about those first roles that made you realise this is it, this is what I enjoy? I think um, it, uh, you know, there's service, mm. um, and I felt that very strongly, wanted, wanting to be of service. Mm-hmm. I feel that the community actually allows you to have some creativity and your ideas are important and worth mm. something to, you know, people, we all contribute to um, the direction of our, the way our communities um, thrive because mm. we've, we're all different, right? So we all need to be able to have a voice and contribute. So I always felt like I had um, people willing to listen to mm. ideas I, I had and I always felt like I was part of a team mm. that was creating something more than, you know, the sum of its parts, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I always, and that's what I love about the community. We're always looking for ways to do things better. Yeah. Never never really um, happy to be static, you know, mm. know that there's better ways um, and always looking for those connections. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's quite a contrast sometimes with the private sector, which is more focused on the shareholder and returns to the shareholder rather than a more broader as you know I do a lot in social enterprise Mm. so the concept of there's more than just the money you know it's actually there's stakeholders and there's impacts beyond just shareholder returns absolutely I mean I spent a few years working in a particular organization that was a um, that was an NGO but it was a for-profit NGO Mm -hmm. and their bottom line was an eight percent return and even though I enjoyed the experience of being um, able to manage a budget and be able to make that return, mm-hmm. there was something about that that was off because it, it really didn't feel like it put people at the centre. Mm-hmm. But I learned some valuable skills too at the same time. But yeah, yeah you're right, the focus is different. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. good. So thinking back to those first roles maybe, um, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, is there, you know, is there advice you would give to yourself when you were starting out in that sector? Mm. Don't take yourself too seriously. Right. (laughs) You're a young person, enjoy life, experience life. I mean, I was quite argumentative a lot of the time. I was uh, often debating people on, uh, I mean, when you're young, you know, you're very passionate about things. Yeah, we should try it this way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, uh, yeah, just keep yourself open to experience Mm. um, and see what's out there and and realize that other people's experiences are just as valid as yours. Mm, mm. Yeah, oh, that's good. So mm. moving through your sort of the next few years and things, because I know you did some further study, right? Yes. Um, what led to that, or why did you choose to do the 
additional study? Yeah, I kind of had a couple of goes at that. I always knew that there, I, I, you know, I enjoyed study and I knew that there was more that I could do. I think some of it was um, understanding that with a degree I could achieve more. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of it. I, you know, became a single parent as well and mm-hmm. I wanted to do really well for my daughter. You know, I wanted to be able to provide well for my daughter. Um, yep. So that was part of the impetus. And I also wanted her to have the uh, role model of someone who, you know, thought study was important. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother was a university um, lecturer and, um, you know, he kept saying, you know, you're bright enough to do study. So all mm. of those things came together. I did an MBA um, with um, at the campus at um, MIT in Otara in Auckland, but it was through Southern Cross University, which is a, um, a university out of New South Wales. Right. Um, and I just liked the way they did their program. It was lots of self-directed um, uh, learning, and we'd get together once a month for a weekend. So mm. I'd meet all my my colleagues, and um, you know, we'd do all the the great kind of brainstorming and thinking together. Mm. But then the rest of the time, you could see I could fit it around my my obligations to my daughter. I could fit mm. it around my work. Um, yeah, it mm. was a and yeah, it was a particularly busy time of my life. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> and did you have a specific subject that you know within that program that you were focusing in on, or was it a broad sort of MBA and yeah. multiple areas? Well, the reason I did it was, um, you know, I'd been supported by my employer at the time to think about um, further training, mm. and I always believed that I, you know, I would give better value if I were, uh, to the community sector if I was better trained, and I decided on doing an MBA business degree. Mm-hmm. Um, with a real community focus because, um, you know, one thing it gave me was some great networks. The second thing it gave me was the ability to kind of read a balance sheet and to be competent in terms of um, uh, the business side of managing an NGO, for example. Mm. And it gave me skills in HR and it gave me skills in um, just recognising what's important, what what things you need to bring together to have a successful organisation, right? So that's the why things that you don't know, you don't know. No, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yep. So it just really opened those opportunities for mm. me, and I, I think that because of that, I became um, of a, a better asset to the community sector because of it. Yeah, and when you came to the end of that study, did you have a? Did it lead to a? I guess a, a change in direction, or did you just continue but with the extra knowledge? It actually accelerated what I was able to do. I think. Right. Um, it got me looking at other opportunities. Um, I became. Why was that? Just opened your opened your horizons. Opened, and also my um, my confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. Uh, and you know, I'm going to make a huge generalisation here, but I think women tend to need um, to have the piece of paper before they feel confident about taking on significant roles. Mm. So after I got my MBA, I felt confident about um, applying to um, become a CEO of a women's refuge. You Mm. know, that gave me that I think I've got all the skills lined up to be able to do this. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So what happened next in terms of your career and and where were you working around that time? Um, so that's when I was working in family violence. Mm-hmm. So I worked, uh, I ran a community refuge which had a, a forward facing shop front, but we actually had a refuge and we had quite a big community um, outreach program that, that went with it. It was about 1900 mm-hmm. um, engagements 
in the course of 12 months. So it was quite wow. a lot. You know, that's quite a lot of quite a lot of work. We had a relationship with the um, the local police, mm. um, and it was quite a significant for me. It's a huge eye opener. I'd always. Um, I don't know if you uh, if you may or may not get the chance to to listen to my maiden speech in Parliament, but I reference a young boy, um, James Fakaruru. When I had been working in um, uh, for a, a single parents organisation called Birthright, I went to a conference in Wanganui, and the the gentleman who was the family the senior family court judge at the time, I'm sorry I forget his name, talked about having read the report on the death of James Fakaruru and there was something that just kind of resonated with mm. me about this young boy's story and I looked it up I actually unfortunately I read the coroner's report mm. and I you know I I say unfortunately because it's still I still find that quite traumatic to mm. actually understand what happened to that wee boy mm. but I what happened with that was I always felt like I need to find the mechanism to support people to stop harming our children. Mm. I had to stop what happened to James from happening to other kids. When I went to family violence, I think I found the place. Mm. Because I really truly believe if we can support our people to be better parents, if we can do something to stop the trauma that they experience as children and help them become whole um, and fulfilled as people, mm. then we can really break the cycle of violence. And mm. I truly, truly believe that. But when I got to family violence, I think I found the place. And that's, for me, that was like, you know, I have my degree, I've, you know, feeling really confident about my work, and, and that really just set me on a course. Mm. Um, I went and did some work for an organisation that um, was building public awareness around the issues of family and sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really led me along the pathway to, um, to becoming a, a Member of Parliament. Mm. And just thinking back to that starting that part of your career was there a moment or something when you had that realization that I'm in the right place this is where I should be like was there a a situation or was it just a gradual building of this is this is the right spot for me well there were there are things that stick out in my mind that what that conference in Whanganui is one of the things that stuck out in my mind that was kind of pivotal Um, there were things going back like meeting um, and working with a woman called Barbara Anderson who I worked for six years in in community mental health and she was our our chief executive and she introduced us to the strengths model so recovery through strengths so looking at people seeing what they're good at and using that as a as a mechanism to help them through Mm. uh, recovery of mental illness so that was really important to me, and I mm-hmm. think you know, strength-based approach, understanding what I was put on the planet to do when I when I heard the story about James Fakaruru, and then mm-hmm. finding the mechanism for that. Mm-hmm. Um, the interview that I did to become the chief executive of what was then Viviana, which became went on to become Family Action. Um, I think you know I can remember when I was um, planning uh, how I would tackle the interview and writing stuff on a piece of paper and I thought you know it was kind of like a a brain dump but I still go back to those ideas you Mm. know Mm -hmm. there was something very like like the planets had aligned I've got all the ideas on paper and I still basically use that as a formula for for kind of engagement they are the principles by which I live my life basically Mm. you know strength looking for opportunities to 
support children to be the best that they can be and um you know and really deal with the issues of violence so mm. yeah that's, that's that's really interesting as well i just i always like to hear people's stories of what has really influenced their lives and also the people who've mm. really influenced their lives and that's yeah the strengths-based approach and then having those principles it sounds like that has carried on being influential beyond what you were applying it to yeah. at that moment. Yeah, I mean, there was the um, we used the Charles Rapp Strengths Model when I was working in um, uh, mental health, and there's one even um, someone who's suffering from severe and persistent mental illness can learn, grow, and change, and that's one of his six principles. And I, I use that. I think e- everyone has the opportunity to learn, grow, and change, mm. and I think that's hugely powerful. I still remember that today. At that end, the community community is the, um, I get, always get it wrong, um, the community is the source of, um, is where you get your resource from. I have to get that principle right, but basically it's saying that um, you shouldn't look to formal structures. Actually, for someone for can get all the resources they need for their life from the community. Right. That's where the, that's where we should be looking to support well-being is actually from the community. Yeah. Well, this is, might be a theme that comes through our interview because I'd like to turn in a minute just to what you're doing today. But before we do that, my daughter, um, in the schools, they're often being taught about growth mindset mm. and fixed mindset. And it, it kind of echoes what you're talking is about as well, isn't it? Like yeah. That rather than having a fixed mindset of, I can't do it, saying I can't do it yet you know it's that opening up to the opportunity that you can learn and you can grow yeah absolutely you can learn you can grow but sometimes you might need um, the catalyst that opens that up now I've had a couple of experiences of uh, mental unwellness myself Mm. um, and I you know I've been medicated for it and the things that have really turned me around have not been the fact that I've been on medication it's Mm. actually those inspiring things that happen like for me it um, I often tell the story when I was at my most low uh, particularly after my brother died um, that I heard a song on the radio and there were some lyrics to that. It's a song by Jewel and it's called, is it called These Hands? Anyway, there's mm. a couple of lines in it and she's, one of the things that really kicked kickstart me was I will not be made idle by despair. And I thought, aha, that's about choice, right? You can either choose to sit in this or you can choose to not sit in it and do something about it. So that was really powerful. But it goes on to say, you know, a whole lot of things about taking control of, you know, the situation. And that, you know, they talk about the size of your hands. These hands are small, Mm -hmm. you know, but its size isn't important. It's what you do with it, that is. But at the the very last line is, um, in the end, only kindness matters. Right. And that sealed the deal for me that's so cool yeah I do know that song Mm. Um, and in the show notes we can put links to things so I might find the YouTube video and put that in yeah would you yeah yeah Yeah. no I I remember that because she probably in the mid 1990s right she had a lot of songs yeah uh, that were very, very popular. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Very, very, really powerful. And when you're in a state of not knowing real uncertainty, sometimes mm. you will hear something or read something, and that's what you need to actually move you on to the next place. Yeah. So, so it sounds like in that role what you were doing was looking for what are those triggers or yeah. the things that can empower people to then move beyond the cycle that they've been in. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's a great story that um, we used to tell when I was working in mental health about one of our um, support workers who had a, a gentleman who um, was really fearful of flies. 
um, and um, he had this whole phobia about flies. Mm. And what he did was he he printed out a picture of a gecko, and he gave him the gecko, and he said, you know, um, in the natural world, there's always something that will take care of Mm. things. So in the natural world, it's lizards and geckos and stuff. So it got him to think about, you know, the way you might overcome a particular situation. So from that, and that was really powerful. The other thing he did was he um, he took a photocopy of his hand. He was going away for a few days. He said, if you're feeling a little lost, just reach out and touch my hand. I'm, I'm, I'm right. here for you. So we used to have this thing called the Gecko Award once a month for mm-hmm. someone who came up with something creative. Simple, right? But yeah. really for that particular person, completely just the right thing to do, yeah. you know? Which I guess echoes what you were saying earlier about finding the um, the power within the community, yeah. that there's actually good ideas out there and it's okay to welcome them and embrace them rather than saying, right, well, here's the template, here's yeah. the model for every interview. It has to be this way, for example. That's, that's, that's exactly right. There's two things in that. Working in mental health, there's either the, uh, the chemical model, you know, the medical model, or there's the yeah. community model. And actually, much more, um, you can gain so much more by using the, the social models, you know, because you are thinking about the person who's in front of you mm. and what's going to best, best suit them. Yeah. Well, what fascinates me is I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit now to what you're doing today, mm. but bearing in mind what you learned from those experiences working in the community sector, because I think that. It sounds like that's provided a foundation for what you're now doing and what you're building. Yeah. So, in terms of your role today, um, how did you? How did politics come into the picture? Like, uh, was it a conversation, or yeah? How did you move into even exploring that as an option? I blame Phil Twyford. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was working at the um, the, the refuge, um, Phil Twyford was looking for people to stand for community board, and right. um, we had, you know, he knew of me and the community. I was I was working in the community that he was a member of parliament for, and he came and saw me one day and I've told this story once or twice and I told it to him and he hadn't remembered this conversation but um, (laughs) he he said I'm looking for Pacific people to join community board I think you'd be a great candidate and I said remember saying to him mate I do not want to come around the corner and see my face on a billboard (laughs) (laughs) but that got me thinking you know it got me thinking about uh, I I, kind of tucked it away Mm. Um, and then when I moved to Christchurch at the end of 2012 and I came down to Christchurch from Auckland mm. specifically to work post quakes because I thought I had some skills. Mm-hmm. My friends who lived here were looking for you know some people to give them a bit of backup, right? Mm. Um, and when I got here, I got uh, working at um, uh, Waipuno Pages Road Youth Service. Great. I often say it's the best job I ever had. Working right. with young people is just extraordinary. Mm. Um, but I got active in the local party here um, and one of my staff members was also a, an active Labour Party member mm-hmm. um, and Leanne Dalzell resigned to run for mayor Right. and my staff member who we would have lunchtime conversations about not only work but policy and stuff like that suggested that I uh, might run t- want to run for selection for the Labour Party and I'd mm. been here a short time mm-hmm. I was an Aucklander I was a Pacific Island woman and I had a funny name <laughs> And I thought, no, those things are not going to line up well in this. But I thought, hey, I had a, a 
chat with my family, ask mm. them what they thought of that. My daughter said, what does it mean? I said, well, if I get selected for Labour and then I run and I win the election, it means I become a Member of Parliament. And she said, what's a Member of Parliament do? And I said, I haven't got a clue. I have no <laughs> idea. I didn't really know. Yeah. Um, my, my take at the time was I would get active in the party. It was my belief system, you know, I I, I believed in what Labour um, wanted to achieve mm. and that eventually I might might build my profile and I might um, be, you know, selected to go on the list. I had no idea um, that I would do as well as I did. So yeah. ran against five local people, got selected for Labour and then went on to win the seat. Yeah, that's fascinating. And one of the things to highlight there, I think, is going back in time that seeds get planted. And when you think about the conversation with Phil Twyford and he doesn't remember it, but that doesn't matter because the seed was there. And I just think how often do we have conversations with people where we have the potential to empower them for the future? And yet sometimes we let those conversations just slide by without planting those seeds. Like, you have potential. You could do this. There's two things in that. The first thing is that um, whenever I speak now, Mm. um, if I'm asked to speak, I often think, you know, I'm quite conscious of this, um, what can I say that might be useful to somebody that's listening? Mm. I'm very conscious that there will be someone in the audience that will take something away from that. And what is it that I I would want them to take away? Mm. The second thing is that... um, Uh, particularly when it comes to politics, people don't stand unless they're asked. Most people don't. Well, there's one or two that kind of get the sense that I want to be a a member of parliament or whatever, but Mm. actually people don't get involved unless they are asked. Mm. And Phil asked me, Mm. and I stored that away, and I remember that. And I, you know, go back to that thinking, well, he thought I was okay Mm. to do this. I could... So... You know, so just remember when you're when you're thinking about uh, people and roles and stuff, just ask. Mm. Just ask. Mm. And it's and it kind of sets the scene for what the person may not even see for years to come. And in a way, coming back, it's a different example, but with your degree, mm. you know that that legitimized becoming a CEO of these organizations. Yeah. It's these conversations then play out in ways you don't see at the time. Absolutely. And yeah. listen to what people are saying about you. I mean, I, I talk about Barbara Anderson because she always used to say things like, you know, I think you're really talented and I think you could be doing this stuff. You mm. might want to think about doing this. And mm. she always raised, you know, opportunity and possibility. Mm. And I think that's an important conversation to have with people. If you recognise talent within someone, mm. tell them, you mm. know, <laughs> encourage them, make, get them to think about things. They may not go the direction that you um, think they should but actually just to get them to open their minds to mm. possibility and opportunity yeah. and actually just recognise that there are talented people out there you know mm. I, sometimes we get a little bit like oh, you know that kind of New Zealand way about us of not kind of being overly overt in our praise of people yeah Mm. But actually, it's okay, and in fact, maybe legitimizes their decision to do something else, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. It actually comes up as a theme in the podcast quite often, because you can imagine I'm asking people about their childhoods, and very often there will be a grandparent or an aunt or uncle or whatever said, you're really good at Mm. blah, 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 whatever it is. And it's those conversations that years and years, sometimes decades later, results in this shift or doing something different there's there's also another thing and that's what my sister used to tell me which was fake it till you make it so just (laughs) you know just have a bit of confidence too you know 
yeah, just yeah. Just walk in the just room. Walk, you just own do it. it. Yeah. yeah, you know. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. Oh, that's mm. really good. Well, this intersects a little bit because Leanne Dalzell was, I think, the fourth person I interviewed for the oh, podcast. Wow. So got yeah. her life story as well. Yeah. Um, so just talk us through then, I guess you're a new member of parliament. Um, what's that, you know, at the time, What was it quite different to what you'd expected? It sounds like you weren't quite sure exactly what it would be. And then talk us through leading up to today and what are the things that you're involved in? I, um, yeah, I turned up on the Monday after after the election and um, walked in the door, huge privilege, saw my name on the door, just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what am I <laughs> this doing? This has happened. Yeah, <laughs> this has happened. Um, and um, I took the attitude, I was really very lucky to have um, a, an EA um, um, Bronwyn, who was also very new to her role, so new MP, mm. new EA. A lot of people told me I was taking my life in my hands by doing that. Neither of us knew what we were doing. But what was really great about the two of us was we're good energy, we got on really well. Mm. And what she wanted to do was uh, make sure that I had all the opportunities that I could to learn how to be a Member of Parliament. Mm. Going in an opposition is a great training ground and you get to um, mm. sit on you know, select committees and you get to have portfolio work and you know. Mm. Um, so what she did for me was she made sure that I covered as many other people in their select committees as possible. We had this little target to get it through, uh, to sit on. So I had permanent select committees that I was a member of, but to sub in for other people. So I could learn the business of Parliament, which is actually about mm. legislation. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that is to sit on a select committee and understand how the legislative process works mm. and also get to know people. So I did that. And I was um, the other piece of advice that I got from Chris Hipkins was in Parliament to sit on as many committee stages in the House so committee stages where you do a clause-by-clause clause review of, of a bill and you get the opportunity to speak for five minutes on, on the bill. And he said, do as many, many committee stages as, as you can because it builds your confidence in speaking right. in the yeah. House. So, you know, these are people that know, you know he knows, he's, he knew what he was doing. So I took that advice on board. So that coupled with being really active behind the scenes and having... Um, the community and voluntary sector portfolio mm -hmm. and liaising with people out in the community and talking to them about where they would want Labour policy to go, that mm. kind of stuff. That's what I did as a um, the early stages of being a um, Member of Parliament. I also got active in the women's space and became a member of the Commonwealth Women Parliamentarians. I actually went on to become the global vice chair of that organisation for mm. a couple of years and still engaged in it. And that's really about representation for women. And in um, the Pacific, if you take New Zealand out of the numbers, the Pacific has the lowest rates of women members of parliament anywhere mm. in the world. And um, that, that's quite shocking for me. So, yeah, I was hugely engaged. That connected me with my Pacific roots mm. um, and also, you know, very passionate about ensuring, um, you know, representation. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I did that um, uh, and just built up, you know, um, good connections into the community, good relationships across the house and with my colleagues. Mm. I had one little minor hiccup within um, within uh, the party, which was a really important thing for me to do where I made a stand about a particular candidate back in um, mm. um, 20, um, 2017, but I'm really pleased I did that. Mm. But yeah, I'd, so yeah, just got on and d did, the, did the mahi that I thought was important. Because mm. mm. I can imagine a lot of things like it's an unusual 
situation where things will be on the front page, but you don't know behind the scenes the conversations. And, and so I can imagine it is coming and particularly new. It's about making relationships and, and talking with other people and getting different perspectives, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and being coming from the community, understanding how to network, you know, I was able to network with, you know, and just glean information from all these these people. And um, yeah, and it was quite a growth um, period for me very exciting yeah. yeah so when I think it was about June last year wasn't yeah. it that you came into the community and voluntary yeah. sector role um, and Honorable Pini Henry was before you yeah. so um, what was that like as a transition and, and yeah oh my goodness <laughs> yeah that was completely like it was a whole next level it's quite interesting because I talked to Penny a lot yeah. about when he was in the role as minister and I, we didn't quite see eye to eye on a few things and I sure. would I would give him the benefit of my wisdom um, not that he would always take it so I was really really um, grateful to be able to um, come into the role but it does become next level you're then dealing with officials um, who may or may not have their own agenda and they may not may or may not have programs that they're wanting to roll out and that mm. may be previous ministers have got set something in motion mm-hmm. it's not always that easy to turn that ship around I came in with a real focus of um, we had talked a lot about uh, everyone should be um, earning learning caring or volunteering and I think the volunteering part of that that discussion has been missing for some time so I came in with a real focus that that's what I wanted to do initially mm-hmm. but it had taken it's taken a long time we had a, a program looking at um, the charities legislation and modernizing that which is an important piece of work as well mm-hmm. um, and you know based on the resource that I have you know some trade-offs were made but it's definitely for me uh, we need to start talking about um, how we can improve the environment for our volunteers and for organisations who are reliant as many of them are in New Zealand that's who we are we're people that give of our time Mm. but we haven't really looked at what strategy government can put in place to support that and support organisations who have volunteers Mm. but it was a huge learning curve that and the fact that um you know, um, I now had an ability to connect with communities in a way and and really advocate strongly for much, much better government support, in my view, much better government support for, that, mm. for, the, for the sector. Yeah, oh, that's really good. I'm just curious, having come from the sector and now the role that you have, what have you been able to bring? Because you talked a little bit about principles, mm. you know, that, that the community has answers, for example. Can you just talk us through some of those things that you've been able to bring from your previous wearing the hat of being in the sector to now what you're doing today? Before, um, in the 2017 election, um, I was lucky enough to, along with a couple of very um, smart people, um, write the policy for our party. And what we did was a a range of um, community um, forums around the, the country. And what came came out of that and it's probably what drives me um, in terms of the work today mm-hmm. is um, the community saying they want a much better connection with government <clears throat> they want to look at the funding environment and to deal with the whole notion of co-opetition where we're forced to collaborate but we're also forced to compete at the same time that we've got to do something about that we also need to as a community look at what our priorities are um, and um, know that you know we have to what government's priorities need to be driven by the community right um, the communities know best what's best for their needs how how can we do that better how can we make sure that the community feels its needs are being met when 
the community in South Waikato will be quite different from the community in Eastern Christchurch, mm. and the needs will be different. But how do we deliver equity in that in that conversation? How do the people of East Christchurch feel as well supported as the people in South Waikato, for example? Mm. So that that's you know, there ideas that have been around for a long time and we tend to like we tend to kind of mechanize that through um, funding agreements and through Mm. monitoring and performance and stuff and that's not what it's about because outcomes for people are not about whether you tick a box or not they're actually about how people can feel like they are on the journey to having fulfilling lives you know Mm. reaching their potential that kind of stuff is not always able to be measured in a Mm-hmm. in a way that our accountants and stuff like or a treasury might might like for example mm-hmm. so having you know I'm, I'm mindful of a couple of things reforming the public finance act which makes that organic way that we should be um, as a government much more possible mm-hmm. and reforming um, the public service um, the public service has not been a public service for a long time it's become much more managerial and we need to put the service back into that and it needs to be much more organic and much more connected to the grassroots. Mm. So those are two things that government can do, but actually the most important thing is actually as government allowing the community to drive the, mm. the, the policies and the, and the priorities of government. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. One of the things that I've noticed with COVID, because we're recording this mm. during this sort of crisis and it's August, for peop- if people want the context, um, let's just get what day it is. It's the 17th of August. So um, I think one of the things that people what tends to happen is people get into silos and they end up talking with people who think the same as they do. And it's natural because the people focused on the youth are talking with people focused on the youth, but there's people over here focused on mental health or elderly or whatever. And actually there's probably a lot of crossover in terms of good ideas and ways that there could be collaborations or tried this, Mm. try that. And I think that's one of the things with COVID and disruption, it's actually forced people or, or they're think more open to thinking, maybe we should try things a little bit differently. Is that mm. something that you're seeing or conversations you're having as yeah, well? Yes, yes, I am. But people are starting to say, you know, in crisis, priorities are food, shelter, mm. um, you know. Um, but to be able to build resiliency into that community, you have to build connection. You know, you have to have good housing. You know, you have to have, you know. So there's a there's two conversations going on here. You have to be able to deal with the crisis, but actually you have to be able to build people up so when crisis happens, it's not as damaging and disruptive and dis- destructive as, you know, it, you know, you minimise all of those impacts. And the only way you can do that really is, is by ensuring resilience resiliency of that population um, so there's two conversations that need to happen how do we make sure that and when times get really tough like they are now we we can roll out that support for people quickly but how can we make sure that we future proof any future shocks on our population mm. yeah yeah no that's good mm. and it's interesting times as well I'd just be curious for your take on this um, in a cross-party way simply politicians who put themselves forward and want to serve or do things, there seems to be a lot of criticism (laughs) about everything at the Mm. moment. And it seems like it's a culture in a way about this. And I'm just worried that in the future, the young people coming up are 
are maybe going to think, well, I don't want to get into politics because of all this negativity and things. Have you got any messages for people who might be considering it? Um, There's a couple of things I want to say about that. The first thing I guess I want to say is that it's not an easy business, but you can't take things personally. And if you come with a set set of values and principles that guide you, Mm -hmm. and you can go back to that place, and you can justify why you you are, why you think, why you do, how you act, Mm then that's okay. You've got to worry about your family, though, because they're not part of Sometimes <laughs> they're impacted by that. And I think just look to that. You know, if you're thinking about it, just look to the people that you admire, you like their values, you like the way they are. Message them. Send them an email and ask for some... You know, we get mm. um, emails from people who are interested in this all the time. Be mindful of the fact that when someone might have a, a simple conversation with you, that you can actually, you can be very impactful. You can turn them off politics really easily if you dismiss people. So just, you know, just think that every time you have an engagement, that's an opportunity to get somebody um, participating in democracy. And that's really powerful. We have to do something about our school system. Mm. We have to um, uh, allow our our young people to understand the system Mm. better. We don't do that. We don't do civics well at all. Um, I think the school strike has, has demonstrated that actually you have a voice and it's a powerful voice. And we stopped and listened, you know, Mm. and... Sorry, Stephen. Oh, I was just going to say, because you, in a way, you're an example of that because you were signing up to run for this yeah. office and your daughter said, what does it mean? And you said, well, I'm not actually sure. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I agree with you. It's um, it's about education, isn't it? It and, is. And getting people to realize. And in terms of the future and your portfolio and what you're focused on with the community and voluntary sector, have you got any thoughts sort of to round off the interview, you know, thinking about the future and any messages to the people out there who are doing the Oh, look, um, uh, COVID has been a, a great a great leveller in many ways, but it has also been a huge opportunity for us to understand how vitally important a thriving community sector is for the health and well-being of our country. Mm-hmm. Has, you know, um, in many ways, COVID has um, been a blessing to, to, we all know it, from the Prime Minister right down to, um, the, you know, the, the essential workers to, um, you, you know, children understand it you know how important the community sector is and I um, I have never been prouder of our country than the way um, we all came together particularly in level four when there's all that uncertainty and people mm-hmm. just stepped into the into the um, into the space and delivered to our people so mm-hmm. that's um, demonstrated to me that we can break down those silos when mm-hmm. we need to and that's where I want to put my focus into us working much more collectively much more collaboratively and actually delivering to our people and building some resiliency. So mm. we don't have to do this so hard in mm. the future. Yeah, mm. oh, that's really good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. And, and as those listening will know, it's kind of, there's a lot going on at the moment. <laughs> so I appreciate that you took time out to have a conversation for Seeds. And the thing reflecting is that I just loved the story of your life before you became a politician, mm. because the, the thing about it is that it, those principles that you talked about, that the community is there and that we can actually draw from knowledge that's already there, I can see how you're now using that in your role 
as a politician as well to to go out and and talk and engage mm. with the community so mm. um yeah and just hearing you know about your childhood and and where you were from so yeah. thank you so much for your time and you're really appreciate welcome. it you're more than welcome i think if i if i have a final word to say you know that um, beautiful yeah. proverb about what is the most important thing in the world it's people it's people it's people mm-hmm. yeah i think yeah. that's yeah that's how i'd like to finish this thank yeah. you for having me on no thank you well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with the Honorable Polto Williams. I know for me there were several things that stood out, and in particular, I liked the way that she talked about the learnings that she had when she was involved in the community sector itself, and how that's laid a foundation for what she does now. And her approach not to say, this is what you need, but instead to ask the question, what is it that you need? If you enjoyed this episode, then bear in mind there's about 200 others in the back catalog. And if you enjoyed this one, I can guarantee that you would love the one with Mele Wint on growing up in Samoa and moving to New Zealand. The one with Anao Misui Henry. She was from Tonga, and she also grew up in New Zealand. There seems to be a trend here. And you might also appreciate the interview with Leanne Dalzell that I referenced during the interview. If you enjoyed this, then you might know somebody else who would as well. So please consider sharing it with others, because that's the best way for seeds to grow. And don't forget, there's lots of links in the show notes, including to that song that Jewel did. And there's a lot more content at theseeds.nz. Until next time. <music>